0: This is You Can Adopt, a series which explores and debunks many of the most common misconceptions about adoption in England. You'll hear first-hand experiences from many different people involved in the adoption process, with each episode hosted by recognisable voices sharing their own experiences of adoption. To find out more and to begin your journey towards growing your family, please visit youcanadopt.co.uk. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by searching You Can Adopt. Now, enjoy the episode. Hello there, you're listening to the You Can Adopt podcast. I'm Matt Barbette. Over the previous episodes of this podcast, we've spoken to a whole host of guests whose lives have been touched by adoption in some way, whether they are a birth parent, an adopter, or an adopted person. Today, as we enter National Adoption Week, we're taking a different approach and we'll be answering questions about adoption that have been sent through to us from the You Can Adopt community. And to help me do that, we're joined by Mark Owers, expert in the field and chair of the National Adoption Recruitment Steering Group. Thanks so much to everyone who submitted a question. We're going to try to get through as many as we possibly can on today's episode. Mark, thanks a lot for joining me. Let's just start by uh, hearing a little bit about you and your experience with adoption because I know you have multiple ways into being an expert on this. Hi Matt, pleasure to be here and thanks for having me. I don't, I'm not sure about being an expert, I
1: think, I think we're all experts in adoption um, once you get into it um, but I've long worked in adoption and I am an adopter of two children. Professionally I started out as a family support worker playing with children on the beach, children with emotional behavioural difficulties and I very quickly realised that it was a career that I wanted and I went to London, to Middlesex University in North London, Enfield, trained to be a social worker and I worked with children and families uh, at Ealing in Enfield and in Haringey, as well as teaching in two universities on the social work course. But in terms of my own adoption journey, I always wanted to adopt from an early age. I, I think this was definitely influenced by a trip to Romania three friends and I fundraised and we went to a remaining orphanage for two weeks. It was a wonderful experience, obviously very emotional, it was hard hitting, but it was also really uplifting. The thing I I took away from it more than anything was the the tremendous resilience of the children and young people, their strength and their zest for life. I suppose like many people before that, um, I had preconceived ideas or assumptions about children needing to be adopted children in care children who can't be looked after by their own parents but I I realized in a very immersive way during that two weeks that they were just kids just like any kids I knew and they just wanted to be happy and they just wanted someone to care about them they wanted to be loved and then I suppose in my my personal life my wife and I always wanted to have lots of kids after we got married we tried to have a a child and after a while we weren't able to so we went down the IVF route the fertility treatment route and the first round didn't work nor did the second nor did the third and all around us our friends were seemingly falling pregnant with such ease we were pleased for them of course we were but each time it was like another punch to the stomach and we just felt we were being left behind and it was never going to happen for us and over Lots of conversations, I suppose. As a couple, we decided that being parents was much more important to us than giving birth, and we felt we'd lost too many years already. And whilst we were by no means old, we were getting older, and we, we we were conscious of the clock ticking. And we decided to adopt, and that that was a big decision, as it is for anybody. You don't just wake up one day and say, "I know what I'm going to do today. I'm going to adopt," and Even though I'd worked in the field for many years, it was very much a step into the unknown for both of us and for our families and friends. We talked to the internet, we read books, um, we spoke to people we knew who'd adopted or involved in adoption. (laughs) We then found ourselves shopping around, looking at different agencies. And we went with a voluntary adoption agency in North London. We loved the preparation groups and we made some good friends. The assessment process wasn't too bad it was uncomfortable at times but we actually completed it fairly quickly within six months which was which wasn't standard at that time we found our two children in a children who wait magazine at the time and we 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 fell in love with them immediately and we fell more in love with them when we started reading about them when we started talking about them with their social worker with their foster carer it was nerve-wracking we were both We were scared to hope too much because of the knocks we'd had along the way, whether that was not being able to have our own children. The first failed IVF, the second failed IVF, the third time, the first time we put an inquiry in about a young person, no one getting back to us the second time and then saying the child had gone. So we wanted to be positive, but we were worried. But the matching panel wasn't too scary. We'd been really well prepared by our social worker. And when they told us we'd be matched, it was just so overwhelming. We just couldn't believe it. I still get boost pumps now, thinking about it and talking about it. And then before no time at all, we were sitting outside the foster carer's home, waiting to meet them for the first time. Oh, my, my word, that was that was so emotional. We, we were supposed to be there at nine o'clock and we arrived at quarter past seven and we sat in the car, just kind of staring out the window and talking to each other and talking through what it was going to be like. And then we walked up to the door, and the foster care opened the door, and our four-year-old son was standing next to her, and our eighteen-month-old daughter was standing shyly behind her legs. And as we got close to the door, he came running over, and he just grabbed a hold of my leg and just hung onto it, and he didn't let go for a few minutes. And I had to pick him up to go into the house, and it was so so overwhelming and and intense, but just amazing. And then. We had a, an intense period of introductions. We weren't allowed to see anyone else. We spent a week seeing the children at the foster carer's house and then a week with the children at our house. I mean, it was a roller coaster. We didn't get the support we, we would have liked to. In, in hindsight. It was a lot about the process. It wasn't enough about our feelings as new parents and what we needed it was some professionals meetings and it just didn't always feel child-centred. And then after two weeks' adoption leave, I had to go back to work. My wife was off for two years. I returned to the Prime Minister's Delivery Unit where uh, I was working, and I was asked by Number Ten to lead a review of the national adoption system uh, in response to the Coalition government coming in in two thousand and nine. Ten, their manifesto commitment to improving adoption, driven very much by Michael Gove, who most people know, uh, was adopted. He was the Secretary of State for Education then, and I presented my report to him. And then I've spent the last 11 years in and around adoption in one way or another, either in
0: the voluntary sector or today leading the National Adopter Recruitment Steering Group. Mark, it definitely sounds like you're the right person for this job of answering questions, both in your professional life and your personal one. So glad to have you with us uh, on the podcast today. Let's get straight to uh, some of the questions because, of course, we've had loads of questions. People really interested in this topic, but sometimes they find it difficult to get the answers. Broadly, the first theme I want to address is how we think about adoption and specifically the process. And you touched upon it there with your own story. First question we have is, how does someone know that they are eligible to adopt?
1: So um, there's there's only three things that automatically rule you out from adoption. Uh, you have to be over 21. You have to be normally domiciled in the United Kingdom. And you can't have committed a serious sexual or violent offence against a child. Thereafter, it's up to the assessment and the way in which you're able to learn the way in which you're able to understand yourself, your strengths, your areas for development, uh, and, of course, the way in which you're able to ask for support when you need it.
0: Okay. And then you mentioned it before, and I know having gone through this process, you're more than familiar with those concerns that there seems to be a lot of agencies to choose from. It can be complicated. As where people ask, do they need to pick one close to where they live? What is the difference between a regional adoption agency and a voluntary adoption agency? Can you unpick some of that stuff for us?
1: Yeah, of course. There are essentially uh, two types of adoption agencies, a regional adoption agency or an RAA, or a voluntary adoption agency, a VAA. The main difference is that local authorities have children in their care and voluntary adoption agencies, they don't. Regional adoption agencies are formed from several local authorities from a region. And they've joined forces in a government-led initiative to bring all of the expertise and resources together uh, to make uh, adoption services much more effective. And we're seeing some really positive results of uh, that new way of working. VAAs, they recruit and assess prospective adopters. They create matches for children who are in the care of a local authority and are then paid by the local authority to cover their costs. There's no there's no profit. Um, it's uh, called the interagency fee, and that enables the VAAs to um, cover how much it costs up front. The voluntary adoption agencies are registered and assessed by Ofsted and they vary in scale. Some are regionally based, such as, for example, the Yorkshire Adoption Agency, while others are uh, major national organisations, for example, Barnardo's.
0: Mark, I'm a biological dad my, myself of two daughters, but of course my wife and I have lots of friends who've adopted in various different ways same sex couple adopting, uh, single parent adopting, adopting abroad. And uh, I'll be thinking about a lot, a lot of those relationships I have uh, during our conversation. But what seems to be universal, especially amongst those friends of mine who've adopted in the UK, is they talk about just how intrusive the process can feel. Uh, and we have a question about that someone asking that they're worried about. Um, the adoption agency, asking those really difficult questions. Someone says, why do they dig so much into your previous private life? Yeah, this question comes up a lot, Matt. And um, I think it is one of the toughest
1: elements of coming into adoption. Because, uh, of course, unlike yourself and being a biological dad, um, having your baby didn't necessarily require many questions. But in terms of adoption, you are asked lots of questions, and they need to be deep questions. Now, when it's done really well, it should be done with respect um, and it should be strengths-based, but of course there should be challenge because you're asking to adopt some of the country's most vulnerable children who have not had the best start in life, and we need to get that decision right because the last thing we want to do is to move them from their own home to a foster family, from a foster family to an adoptive family, and then for that adoptive family to break down. Now, the adoption breakdown rate is only around 4%, which is a very low figure, and that is good. But to be assured of making that decision, we need to understand people's lives and their experiences and the things that have happened to them, the strength of their relationship with their current partner, with their previous partners and what we're essentially doing in that assessment is trying to predict the future we're saying will this couple stay together and we all know people who we thought were going to be together forever who have somewhere on the line ended up separating and we have to understand as well as we can in advance of what the probability is, what the likelihood is of 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 a stable family is likely to be, and that
0: includes single people as well as co-adopters. It absolutely makes sense, uh, and yes, I reflect on being a biological parent, and there's nowhere near as much conversation around that. I mean, that's uh, that that's a given. Maybe there should be, um, but in this instance, when the agencies are having to ask. Those difficult questions, talking to previous partners, which is, I think, tricky at the best of times. It then begs the question: How long does the whole process take? And also, how much does it cost? Because if it's that in depth, it's going to take time and money to to get to the end of it.
1: Yes. Yeah, so uh, one of the things that we did in two thousand and ten was look at the unnecessary delay in adoption, and we 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 subsequently changed the the legislation, the guidance to ensure that um, it was done quicker. So there is now a consideration phase and then a registration of interest, which is when the clock starts ticking. So when uh, prospective adopters um, decide they want to go ahead with it after doing some homework, uh, there is a two-month phase of of checks and balances and and training, and then a a four-month stays of of assessment. So essentially taken together, the two-month plus four-month is a six-month period and the approval should happen within that time frame as far as possible. Some people take a pause. Sometimes a worker might leave and the prospective adopters need to be reallocated. So there are are sometimes good reasons why it won't happen within the six-month period. In terms of cost, there is no profit in adoption. So it actually doesn't cost uh, adopters anything to actually adopt. But of course, there are Costs around travelling to preparation groups, travelling and staying overnight as part of the introduction arrangements, and some local authorities cover all of the costs, and some don't it depends often that is done on a means test, so a financial assessment of a prospective adopter's means will be undertaken, and also it depends on the the, the needs of the child or children and when they have more complex needs generally speaking, there is more financial assistance available to help prospective adopters and adopters. The the way in which we expect adopters to be at home in the early stages of the child joining your family also requires a parent to be at home for a period of time. So there is a cost there potentially of less income. But again, that's understood as part of the assessment process.
0: Each situation is unique. Each child and adopter is unique. But really, when we're talking about the time it takes, Mark, what is if you're embarking on the process, you think I want to do this. What's the sort of likelihood time wise of it happening within six months or maybe it's a year or two years? What what What's the average, I, I guess?
1: The, 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 well, the average is just over six months. But although the the average has been skewed over the last eighteen months because of COVID, so that's had an impact on timeliness. But in terms of how long the process takes, you've made the, the the point for me. Everybody's journey to adoption and through adoption is different. So some people might choose to adopt immediately as a couple or as a as a as a single adopter, and they are not going through a longer process of fertility treatment and then the aftermath of the fertility treatment and then getting ready to 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 be in an emotional state of mind and to be strong enough to go through the adoption process. So people's journeys to adoption take longer. And of course, it's not just the approval uh, stage where you're approved to be an adopter. You then have the time it takes to find a child for that child and you to be matched. And then for that match to be approved and then from match approval to planning the child actually moving into you so all each of those phases are different we though as a as a couple went from entering the adoption process to the child moving in in nine uh, to
0: both our children moving in within nine months but some people can wait three or four years it makes sense they makes sense. And really valuable insights, market into the process. I know they're going to be helpful to a lot of people listening. Um, you just touched upon matching there. I think it'd be a good time now to move on to those questions about matching with a child and meeting for them, them for the first time. We've got quite a few questions around these topics. And the first one I'd like to ask is, uh, on behalf of uh, someone in the community, was how do adopters find out about children who have adoption as their plan for the future? So once you've been accepted into the adoption assessment process and are on the way to being
1: approved, you start getting access to profiles of children waiting to be adopted. That's often in consideration to the characteristics that you as adopters have said that you are willing to um, consider. So uh, your social worker will ask you if you want one or two children, a boy or a girl, a baby uh, under five uh, an over 10. And then considerations around whether there is any mental health, hereditary kind of issues in the family, whether there are any kind of complex health needs, et cetera, et cetera. So, and, and your social worker will help you to think about what you're able to to, pro- to provide by way of support to children with different needs. Once you are then expressing an interest and you have an inquiry accepted, you can then get to a, another layer of information where you can start talking to the social worker the social worker will talk to you and talk to your social worker, and then you start getting to a point where you are thinking about whether this is going to potentially be a match, and then you get a bit more information. And then, of course, you really need to—and I can't say this enough—as um, a as a as a prospective adopters, particularly at the point when you've been approved, you'll feel a bit more empowered that you want to do your due diligence. It's really important that you're supported to read the child's case records and that you're able to look at the detail, that you're able to ask questions, you're able to look at their health history, you're able to to look at their education history so you know exactly what it is that you're getting into. The due diligence is a really important part of this and it's really important that adopters ask the questions.
0: I don't want to be trite about this but it's certainly a, a truism that in the biggest decisions in people's lives they often don't pay enough attention. Do you have to encourage people to really make take that due diligence at that point in time? Or when they're at that stage of the process, is it just an expectation? They have to know exactly what they're taking on and who the child is. I mean, your, your
1: point's absolutely right, Matt.
0: It's an emotional
1: decision, isn't it? And it's not to say that it's the wrong decision, but you're wanting to make an informed decision. And you're wanting to know exactly what is likely to be ahead of you. And what contract are you entering into with your local authority and your adoption agency in terms of the absolute guaranteed support that you're going to need to help you along the way? And and it's really important. So if you think about a, a, a child that might have some health needs, but there are ongoing um, health investigations, and so you don't know necessarily from the outset exactly what that will mean for the, in the longer term.
0: And you're going to want to know what that's going to mean for you and your family in the future. One thing you didn't mention, I noticed there, when you're talking about getting those early details about the children who might be available to you to adopt was the ethnicity. At what point, if any, does that become important? So ethnicity is really important in terms of matching
1: considerations. There's been lots of coverage and debate about uh, interracial adoption and the law was changed in in around 2015 in respect to um, the way in which it was considered um and there was if you like a relaxation around the 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 the, the way in which children could be placed interracially interculturally it's a really important factor and consideration but it's not to say in my view that you can't place interracially we know that it works very well when people go into it with their eyes open when they've done their research and when they work hard to meet the needs of the child when those needs are sometimes different from their own needs but of course the wonderful world we live in uh, particularly in the UK uh, in terms of the many families of mixed heritage increasingly it's actually very difficult to find a match uh, because people have such diversity in their background and as much as anything it's about understanding and celebrating the diverse families that we have and the way in which we can help make them
0: work And we all have to work hard as parents to explain the themes that are prevalent at the moment. We've all seen how Black Lives Matter has come to the fore. And I've witnessed friends of mine who are a white couple and they have adopted a a mixed race daughter. they adopted her when she was very, very young. She was still a baby. But clearly, she recognizes the differences between her and her parents and that those conversations require so much sensitivity and, and quite a bit of hard work on the part of both parties, and need to be considered right from the off. I'm guessing.
1: Yes, they do, and some
0: of the questions
1: will be around um, where there is difference. What will you do to enable the child to understand their culture and their heritage and their ethnicity? How will you be able to become part of uh, a culture that you might not be part of now, in terms of whether that's places you go? people you interact with, that clubs that you go to, but also the way in which you tap into ethnic minority communities, for example, and ask for help and are willing to accept that help again in a respectful, strength based way. But it's similar to the way in which a dad is is helping a daughter to understand gender issues. I'm not in, in any way saying it's the same, it's it's very different. But in terms of understanding diversity and wanting
0: to have greater inclusivity, we all need to work hard at it, don't we? Absolutely. Yeah, as a father of girls, I see it in a different way than I ever could have before they were here. So I yeah, I heartily agree with that. The next question mark is, and you, we've talked about recent themes. I guess the obvious one is how has the introduction process um, changed or been impacted by the pandemic over the past eighteen months?
1: Yeah, the pandemic it 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 really did shock us as a group of regional adoption agency leaders, together with the Department for Education, myself and others helping to shape and lead the system. And we spent considerable time together over the first three months where we were just trying to understand what it meant um, and how we could keep the process and the system moving because the last thing we wanted the pandemic to do was to grind the care system to a halt and for children to wait even longer for their forever homes. But actually we quickly learnt new ways of working using virtual technology. And although many of us hadn't used video conferencing as much as we now do so easily, we were able to develop tools and techniques but critically quality assurance processes and systems and ways of working to enable people to be at their best through a computer screen. Now there is absolutely for me no doubt that it's better to do assessments in person because as you'll know much of communication 70% or thereabouts is of communication is body language 10% is tone and 20% is what we actually say and the way in which we understand body language over virtual technology is inevitably blurred and we have to work harder at it. So Things like doing less sessions in a day for longer and in different ways through different types of role playing, through different types of um, assessment tools uh, has, has enabled social workers to learn to understand people's strengths and areas for development in different ways. So actually, we've done a lot of learning. And I think there's benefits for the way in which we've done that learning and the way in which we've done open ended questions, for example, and the way we've helped people explore in their own time in terms of their own homework and their own self-reflection that we're now able to bring back into a physical space. So whilst it was tricky at first and we were able to redesign the ways in which we've done things as we've come out of the pandemic, I think the adoption system um, will be stronger as 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 a benefit.
0: And watching the adoption system evolve has been has been really fascinating, from the point of view of me being a child of biological parents to becoming a parent of biological children myself. And the next question we have, bearing in mind the ones we've had so far have been from uh, parents, it seems, is this one is from someone who was adopted. They say I've always known that I was adopted, and I had letterbox contact. I don't want to upset my parents, but when and how? Can I find out more about my birth family. That must be one of the most important questions for someone who has been adopted.
1: See, I think, Matt, this is one of the most important developments that we're seeing in the adoption system. Uh, And we've moved away from it being a secret, sometimes a dirty secret, particularly when, for religious reasons, mothers were giving up their children in secret, where we now are moving to much more open adoption and contact after adoption. Professor Beth Neal at the University of East Anglia uh, has done um, groundbreaking work in this space for over, well over two decades and we're, we're now really starting to understand through research how important it is for children to know they're adopted from as young as they can remember. So where children can say I can't ever remember being told I was adopted, that's where we want to get to because it is who they are and we do them a disservice if we are not open about it. And we also do them a disservice if we are not understanding for them of what it means to have been adopted in terms of why they were adopted, why their birth family couldn't look after them, why they came into care, what their adoptive family have meant to them as their second family, but also what will their birth family mean to them as they grow up and as they as they get older. And we know from the research that many children who are adopted will in one way or another seek to make contact with their birth family members. And that's not just their mum and dad. It could be their brother or sister. It could be their uncle, their aunt, their grandparents. And actually... For them to thrive as adults, it's really important that their birth families have an important part in their life growing up. That doesn't necessarily mean physical contact, but it does mean meaningful contact and meaningful discussions about who they are and the place they have in their lives as they understand who they are. And it's essentially part of their identity and how they understand their lives it's so so important and for most adopters Matt the idea of having to share your child with another mummy and daddy is painful right Um, but actually it's important in modern adoption for prospective adopters to understand that they're not adopting a child that will just always be theirs solely theirs And that there is another family that exists, whether they have contact with them or not. And that requires the right training, the right support and some real resilience. But also at the heart of it is putting the child's needs first. And the child needs to understand their history and their future, as well as their present with their adoptive family.
0: So much deep thought goes into all this. I I think of friends I grew up with who did know from The earliest possible stage that they were adopted. They weren't biological siblings, but they were adopted siblings. And actually, they didn't really want to find out any more about their biological background than that. They were happy to keep things as they were, and their mum and dad were their mum and dad as they saw it. So I think, like we said earlier, each situation is unique. But what you're telling me now is. Those options have to be on the table and have to be understood. Yeah.
1: And it needs to, it needs to be meaningful. For a long time, we've you, uh, you'll have heard the term letterbox and letterbox contact. And it's often been the default whereby there's an agreement at the court at the final order that um, there will be letterbox contact. And generally, that is a letter is written once a year or twice a year together with the adoptive family for the child and with the child. And then that letter is sent to the local authority, the local authority receive the letter, they just check it and then they forward it on to the birth family, the mother, the father, the grandparent, and then they may send a letter back and then it's done in the opposite way round. But as as an adoptive father myself sitting in a room once a year with my child and trying to make that a real experience and something that they feel and own and understand, it's conceptual in many respects. And they they want to be writing about someone they have more in common with, someone they have more information about. And so there are many more ways in which we can promote indirect contact than just doing letters. And indeed, with the way in which we're able to use new technologies, the way in which we might have face-to-face contact using FaceTime, for example, where we're able to ensure a child is, is safe, and we're able to kind of monitor the, 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 the type of contact they have. There are lots of different ways now in the way in which we can promote contact, meaningful contact that means something to the
0: child. Mark, we're talking today as a result of it being National Adoption Week. So I'd like to finish off just by chatting about that a bit more and, and you know, what the whole Of modern adoption really means to you. And you you touched upon it there, the sort of change in the process. I mean, there's so much to discuss about how adoption in England has evolved over the past 20 or 30 years. But to give it an overview, do you think, and you must think, that the situation is in a much better place now than it ever has been?
1: I, I think it's in a better place. I mean, I've dedicated much of my professional and all of my Um, personal life to adoption for well over a decade. That's been born out of wanting to make a difference for every single child, my own children and and other children. In adoption, there's long been a a, a concept of the adoption triangle. And the adoption triangle, the three points, the child, the adoptive family, and their family, and the third point being the birth family. Within that adoption triangle, we've not always had the right balance uh, up until more recently. And for the child to be almost at the heart of that triangle there needs to be proper consideration and thought to the way in which we support the child the way in which we support their adopters and their their family and the way in which we support the birth families and at times in the past there have been hierarchies unhelpful hierarchies in my view so we have to be really clear that adoption isn't about making families for the adopters it's 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 obviously about meeting the needs of children who need a home a forever loving home but if if we are driven by the child's needs we're not going to get the adoptive parents needs right to meet the child's needs and if we don't take full account of the story of the adoptive family and where they fit within the child's history and future and the adoptive family's future and history then when the child becomes an adult and tries to understand their birth families, we haven't supported their needs. So we need a system and we increasingly have a system that understands those three perspectives in a much more informed, compassionate, considered, strengths-based way. And for, for long periods of time, adoption was born from shame because of having children out of wedlock there was a secret around it and then of course many children who are adopted are adopted because their parents can't safely look after them so we in society sometimes see them as having failed and we see parents who abuse their children as being mad or bad as opposed to really understanding that many parents who cannot safely look after their own children have not been able to because of their own experiences of childhood, because of drug and alcohol issues, because of poverty, because of domestic abuse, because of mental health difficulties. And many, many of those parents who can't have their children living with them, who want to be better parents, but just can't be, need our respect as much as adopters and as much as the children who are being adopted. Now, for many people, that will be difficult to hear. But the fact of the matter is, they have needs as well. Birth family members have needs as well. And we we are working really hard across the whole of the care system to properly understand the needs of birth parents right at the first stages in terms of early help when children are in need. So firstly, we we, we do more earlier to help families to keep their own children. When it isn't safe for them to look after their own children, we don't delay. We do not hesitate. We do look for them to be placed permanently, whether that's adoption or whether that's foster care, whether that's kinship care. So living with friends and family. Um, but we we critically look to the bits of the parenting that the birth family members can still do safely. And it doesn't just have to be a right, that's it, you've lost You've lost now, there's nothing you can do, you, you have to say goodbye to your children forever. In some instances, that's absolutely right, and it's safe and proper to do so. But in other instances, we can do better to ensure birth families continue to have a role in an adopted child's life, because it will help them to be more successful as adults, to thrive as adults, and to understand what's happened to them. And so the system is now much more focused on what are we doing to support birth family members as equally as how are we supporting adopters and how are we supporting children and young people?
0: I think that's incredibly thought provoking, Mark, and amazing to hear it's changed. It's not a black and white situation. It's not a one size fits all. It's a a grey area and each situation is unique. The final thing I want to just talk to you about just to wrap up this episode is, especially as it is National Adoption Week. Just to remind us briefly why it is so important to share as many of these voices, many voices we've heard on the You Can Adopt podcast, get people talking about it, getting people demystifying it. Just tell us how important so that is. So, in
1: terms of being directly involved in the adoption system, um, I've seen 11 National Adoption Weeks, and all of those have been very much about promoting adoption to bring people forward to adoption because, quite rightly, we don't want children waiting to be adopted. When I decided I wanted to adopt, my children were already waiting for me. You just think about that. They were already waiting. They were already in foster care waiting and I hadn't even decided to put my application form in. So we cannot have unnecessary delay. So we need to bring people forward to adopt, but we need to bring the right people into the system. And we need to bring the right people into the system who fully understand how complex this is and that they're not just adopting a child. They're also adopting their birth family in, in, in you know, not, not literally, but in terms of the emotional kind of contract that we're asking for them to, 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 to bring. And too often by accident, not necessarily deliberately, the way in which we've presented adoption has is, is been at the detriment to birth family members. When actually, if we want a wholesome adoption system, we need everybody thinking about adoption and hearing about adoption and knowing about adoption to understand that adoption triangle that I talked about in a much more considered and informed way. And so this year, we are wanting to hear much more from adoptive families and birth families, as well as children and young people who've been adopted So that everybody in our society gets a much more rounded, considered and fuller view of what we're actually talking about when we talk about adoption. It's not a happy, ever-ending kind of story. Oh, well done, you've been adopted and all of that. Those things that happened to you in the past now won't happen in the future. Everything that happened to them in the past is part of their life. It's part of their life story. It's part of their identity. And those people will be part of their life in the future. And it's really important that we 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 see that because we owe it to our children. The children who haven't had the best start in life, their parents who have not had the best start in their own lives, and also adopters who often are going through their own challenges and adversity to have children. That we all consider their needs equally and bring that together, and that's what this this Adoption Week is about this year. It's more sophisticated in some respects. It's a bit risky. We might have fewer people coming forward. Because they don't want to have to share their children. But at the same time, we think it's an important risk to take because actually, we think more people will come forward. Because if we get their understanding right and if we get the support right, then we will have children who are more fulfilled as young children, as adolescents. And actually, it will be easier to support them when they go through different transition points as adolescents when they're struggling with some of their feelings about adolescence and their brain development and about their peers, but also about understanding their story about adoption. Let's make the adoption story easier for children because it's hard enough being a parent without having all of that extra on top without
0: being straight about it. I can certainly understand that. Mark, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you about all this. It's not easy to condense it all into an episode of our podcast, but I think you've done a fantastic job in uh, answering a lot of those tricky questions. Uh, thanks so much for joining me on this and, uh, and do carry on with all the amazing work that you're doing. Thanks, Matt. It's been an absolute pleasure. Take good care. Thanks for listening to this episode of You Can Adopt. Listen out for more new episodes coming up. And if you haven't already, check out the first six episodes that cover many different and interesting stories from adoptive families. For more information and to take the first step towards growing your family, visit youcanadopt.co.uk. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by searching You Can Adopt. PAC uk is the country's largest independent adoption support agency and works with all of those affected by adoption and other forms of permanent care to provide advice, support, specialist therapy and counselling. For more information, please visit www.pac-uk.org. That's pac-uk.org or call 020 7284 5879.